News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 5th. It's show number 32 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola, a regular Talk with Todd commentator, about molecular density, about a possible new hybrid fantasy baseball game combining the daily game with season length, about the shifting tide of dump trading, and more. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Cameron Mabin, Tyson Ross, and other players. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson, looking at Adrian Beltre and Joey Gallo, Mark Trumbo's move to Seattle, and much more. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at a battle of southpaws between Dodgers ace Clayton Kershaw, hosting St. Louis starter Jaime Garcia, and a showdown between top righties Michael Pineda of the Yankees at home to face the Angels' Garrett Richards. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about the free pass. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The calendar has turned to June. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and our friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Nick, the big news in the National League, uh, well, in both leagues, actually, was a trade, a six-player trade involving the Seattle Mariners and the Arizona Diamondbacks. And coming into the National League, I guess the biggest name in the trade going to Arizona is catcher Wellington Castillo. Wellington Castillo is kind of an interesting guy. If you, you look at what he's done so far this year, there's no reason, certainly, to get excited. But if you look back over the past couple of years, uh, in 2013, William Castillo had eight home runs, 274 batting average. Not Certainly not bad at all for a catcher. And, and uh, last year, 13 home runs, 237 batting average. So his history says there's something there. Uh, at this point in the season, William Castillo has not been hitting well. He's hitting 162 with two home runs and 68 at-bats. Uh, been struggling a, a lot, in, in, um, uh, and I think he's been on the DL a little bit. So not a whole lot been going on with Wellington Castillo at this point, but his history says there may be more there, and our projections are, are a little bit more favorable, and moving into a nice hitting park in Arizona, so if you're, Wellington Castillo may be the kind of guy you want to take a take a look at in a uh, in a two-catcher league, because there could be something there uh, as the season progresses, a, a fairly average uh, power index, maybe right around league average, and could hit a few home runs and get his batting average up close to 250. Yeah, the uh, projections aren't that bad. They're also not that great. But for a second catcher, you're looking at maybe getting eight or nine home runs and 30 RBIs. And in a lot of leagues, that's pretty good production from that second catcher slot. So certainly worth looking at. Uh, that 244 batting average, uh, five years ago, Nick, both you and I would look at that and go, absolutely forget it. But nowadays, 244 is not that bad. Not at all. If you're going to get nine home runs and a 244 batting average out of a catcher, you know, number two catcher, not bad at all, the way that things are things are rolling these days. 
expected, expected batting average. Last month, Castillo's hit 119 with no home runs and two RBIs. So, not, not something to get too excited about or to pay very much for. Expected batting average so far this year, just 234. So, there's a little bit of downside risk here, but uh, probably not a ton. It looks like a fairly safe bet for a second catcher if you can land Wellington Castillo. Uh, Nick, Matt Cederholm in his market pulse column, another terrible pun in the title. Uh, I'm not even going to repeat it. That's how horrible it is. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, amongst the players that he cited in uh, as a buy in his market pulse column, Matt cites uh, Atlanta outfielder Cameron Mabin, who's on a roll. Well, we've been waiting on Cameron Mabin for how many years to really get on a roll, and, and he's certainly been on a roll over the last month and therefore getting picked up in a lot of leagues. Hitting 290 with uh, five stolen bases and a home run and 15 RBIs over the past month and getting lots of playing time in Atlanta. I think the important thing about, about Cameron Mabin, and here's a guy who's 28 years old, and you begin asking, has he turned some kind of a corner? And I think the answer is no. This is the same kind of ball player we've been looking at for the last, uh, for the last couple of years. But we've known that, always known that Cameron maybe has good speed, uh, a potential for hitting a few home runs here and there, and if he can keep that batting average above 250 uh, in the current environment, a, a guy that may be worth a few bucks. Uh, so certainly Cameron Mabin, I think, is worth taking a look at. I wouldn't expect a whole lot different from Cameron Mabin than we've seen before. He's making maybe a little better contact over the last month than he, than he generally does. He's getting a few more walks. Uh, but I don't think this is a whole new ball player. No, a little long in the tooth to be expecting a, a complete renaissance. Uh, of course, he's had so much injury trouble over his career, Nick, that it's almost kind of hard to say what kind of player Cameron Mabin is because we've never really seen him at 100% for an extended period. What we're projecting is, you know, maybe six, seven home runs, but 17 stolen bases from now to the end. That could be real helpful in a lot of leagues. It could indeed. I mean, we may be looking at Cameron Mabin, if you look back over his history, was a $20 ball player in 2011 when he stole 40 bases at 264. And he could make it back to that $20 level this season if he can keep the batting average up, steal a few more bases, and, and maybe come very close to being a $20 ball player. Projecting 260 batting average as well, so that's not bad either. Uh, since uh, Ron Chandler left BaseballHQ.com, a little bit more work for Ray Murphy in the administrative end, so the speculator column is now a part of a rotation, and BaseballHQ.com American League beat writer Jock Thompson is part of it, and in his speculator column this week, he was looking at top skills that aren't really being re quite reflected so far, and uh, one of the names that popped up for him was Atlanta shortstop Andrelton Simmons. You know, before we talk about Simmons, let me talk about that column and and what Jock did for a minute, because I think some folks kind of miss this sometimes on the site. The site has a list of leading indicators and players who are, are uh, at the top of their game based on those indicators. And every once in a while, some surprises show up there. You'll look at, for example, the top players in terms of, in this case, uh, expected batting average, and, and Andrelson Simmons jumps into the picture, uh, only hitting two sixty five right now. But when you, when you see that he's one of the top leaders in expected batting average, you begin to, to pay more attention. And so I would, I would really recommend that people take a close look at that, at those leading indicators. Um, sometimes those lists get populated with, with players who have only been up for a week and done very well, and, and they fall off very quickly. But when you're looking at guys who've been there a long time, those leading indicators can really tell you something and can kind of pinpoint a guy who's ready to, uh, to, to make a breakthrough. And as Jock said, and Dalton Simmons is one of those guys, I mean, here is a guy with an expected batting average of 303. He's got a 91% contact rate. My goodness, I mean, that's great. Striking out, striking out very, very seldom. Uh, good batting eye, uh, hard hit contact rate, about league average. Uh, 
so uh, I think a, a solid line drive rate at 24%. So a guy who's batting average right now is 265, but really could be a 300 hitter in terms of uh, of a, a, an extended stretch between now and the end of the season. The thing about him, Jelton Simmons, of course, is we're not going to get a lot of home runs. We're not going to get a lot of stolen bases. Uh, so uh, he, he's going to get some numbers because he's in there every day and wind up with some decent run totals and some uh, decent RBI totals. Not a lot of other production, perhaps, but a 300 batting average would be worth something uh, as a shortstop in the National League. It's uh, curious that a guy as athletic as Andrelton Simmons is, and uh, he's certainly fleet of foot, he has very few stolen base opportunities. Only about 4% of the time does he bother to run, and as a result, his stolen base totals are very low, and we're only projecting three more for the rest of the year. Are you surprised that Andrelton Simmons isn't a double-digit base stealer? Yeah, I am. I mean, the speed totals are very, very good. He's not an elite speedster by, by any means, but certainly well above average, and so it's one of those things, I guess, where the manager is not giving him a green light and, and certainly when he's on base not deciding to send him uh, because the, the, the stolen base opportunity percentage is very, very low. One other thing you have to like about Simmons also, Nick, is with that glove, you know he's going to stay in the lineup, even if he has to bat you know, eighth or even ninth if they pull that uh, pitcher flip-flop at the bottom of the order. Uh, Andrelton Simmons may struggle with the bat from time to time, although, as you said, he's doing very well this year on a skills basis. But no matter what goes on with the bat, he's going to be in there for the glove. Yeah, he will indeed. So you can count on him being in the lineup every day. We're projecting a total of 592 at-bats, which is a, a whopping at-bat total, certainly, for the season. Uh, and, and for that very reason, we expect him to play full-time, every day in the lineup. And finally, one of our favorite columnists is Stephen Nickrand, the starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist, also the batting buyer's guide columnist this year. In his starting pitcher column, he was looking at base performance value leaders through May, and uh, one of the names in the National League that popped out amongst several interesting ones was uh, the San Diego right-hander Tyson Ross. Yeah, it's worth talking about Tyson Ross at this point in the season because I'm sure he's been a huge disappointment to people who who uh, who drafted him? I mean, that last year a 2.81 earned run average. At this point in the season, he's got a 2.5 record and a 3.76 earned run average. And uh, you're kind of going, uh, did I did I make a huge mistake in drafting Tyson Ross? And I think the the important thing to to take away from Stevens Stevens column is that uh, Tyson Ross's skills have been extremely extremely good. Uh, he's just having some bad luck here and there, but but all of the skills are good. His velocity is good. His Swinging strike rate is good. His first pitch strike rate could be a little bit higher, but excellent dom, good command. Uh, so the, the problem has been a high hit rate, a 36% hit rate, and that should, that should kind of come down on its own, and things should get better for Tyson Ross. And the other thing to, to point out, if, if, uh, if you're a Tyson Ross owner and haven't noticed this lately, Tyson Ross is pitching much better in San Diego than he is on the road. So if you've got the kind of a league where you can rotate your your starters, here's a guy worth right now taking a look at when he's at home because he's been lights out, and then he gets on the road, and, uh, and things seem to fall apart a bit for him. So certainly something to keep in mind. But looking back over the last, uh, his last uh, starts, in terms of skills, going back to April 28th, we've got a string of three, six uh, PQS dominant starts, a, a, a PQS two, and a loss to Pittsburgh uh, earlier in the week, but otherwise been pitching very, very well. Even in that PQS two, he allowed only two earned runs in six innings. So, so uh, again, not not bad for the overall total.
We've mentioned before, talking about pitchers in this uh, commentary, Nick, about the combination of ground balls and strikeouts. And uh, as Stephen Nickran says, no other starting pitcher in baseball had the same combinations of strikeouts, stuff, and ground balls. Lots of swinging strikes, 9.3 dominance rate, 71% ground balls. Boy, once that hit rate normalizes from 36% down to 30, which it should do uh, considering that that many ground balls, uh, boy, Tyson Ross could be one of the by-low ca- uh, candidates of the century here. Yeah, very definitely. He's someone that right now, if I were did not have him on my roster, I'd be going out to try to, to, try to get him if you can get a good deal on him because uh, you're right, this guy could really take off over the next uh, the rest of the season. We're projecting seven wins, 132 innings, 129 strikeouts, so pretty much a strikeout per inning with a 307 ERA. Uh, a little bit of concern about the whip at 131. That's high in the modern in the modern game. We like to see that around 115 for a real ace caliber pitcher. But uh, if he can straighten that out, maybe get a little more hit rate luck, Tyson Ross could be a real get. Uh, Nick, thanks very much for doing this, and we'll catch up with you again next week. You're very welcome. Have a good week. I'll certainly try. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchups for BaseballHQ.com and is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's over to the American League and speculator columnist and director of news and analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome to the show. How you like the speculating? I'm enjoying it, PD. I mean, I've done my first uh, column. Uh, looking forward to the next one. I'm uh, going on uh, vacation. At least I hope I am next week. So I won't be doing that one, but uh, in a couple of weeks, I will try it again. How are they rolling it around? I know Ray had to take uh, a, ba- a step back because of the uh, the changes involving Ron Chandler leaving and uh, increased administrative work and so forth for Ray. So how are you guys uh, rolling around this uh, speculator column? Well, basically what we're doing is we're, we're looking at the uh, at the MLB calendar and, and trying to figure out, okay, what would be most helpful for, for, uh, for the subscribers and our fantasy owners. But with regard to scheduling ourselves, it... it it's really a matter of who's doing what in what weeks. For example, uh, I'm going to be out next week. Uh, I know that they have some um, some uh, convention plans in early August. I'm going to take over for them. So we're once you get three people involved in the rotation, uh, we pretty much accommodate each other. Who's the third person? It's Brent and I right now, but uh, Ray will probably still be stepping in occasionally. That sounds good. Uh, let's get on to the American League news. That's your job here at Baseball HQ Radio, and you do a great job of it. Uh, lots of news in the American League to talk about. The item with the most obvious fantasy effect is in Texas, where all-star third baseman Adrian Beltre has sustained a strained right thumb. He's going to be on the DL for at least three weeks. Obviously, his hitchhiking is going to suffer. The Rangers called up elite power prospect Joey Gallo to replace Beltre. He got off to a great start. I think he hit a home run in his first game. It was three for four, uh, just missed a cycle. He needed a triple. Rod Truesdell covered all of this in playing time today. So, Jock, to start off with, what's the outlook for Adrian Beltre? Well, obviously, it's never a good thing uh, losing a player like Beltre, who after a horrible April had begun to heat up in May. He was hitting uh, 293 with four home runs through 123 at-bats before his injuries. But a couple of things. Beltre's 36, and, and he, he might be giving off some initial decline hints if you look at his start and if you look at his power metrics and, and trends down from uh, 2012. But but it's a graceful decline, so he's still a factor. One prevailing thought entering May when the Rangers were doing so poorly 
was that the Rangers, sh the Rangers should rebuild and, and trade Beltre in advance of, uh, of Gallo coming up and taking over third base down the road. But now with the Ranger offense red hot and their rotation at least holding its own for now and, and with some real parity in the AL West, that thinking may have changed. Um, obviously, Beltre is going to return to his third base job when he gets better. But suddenly things look interesting in the playing time mix for, for Texas. Adrian Beltre, of course, one of the finest fielding third basemen, I think, in the history of the game. Uh, Joey Gallo doesn't seem, from what I've read, to be quite in that league. No, no one is quite as good as Beltre. I think it's unfair comparing somebody with uh, Gallo's uh, inexperience to Beltre, but, uh, and, and maybe even in his, in his full, uh, full form, he's never going to be as good as Beltre. But then again, who is? In the meantime, Jock, the Rangers' offensive explosion has moved them all the way up to the second place in the American League in scoring, and Gallo doesn't look like he's certainly going to slow any of that down. What do you think his outlook is, especially after Beltre comes back to the uh, active roster? Well, this is akin to what we were talking about last week when we were trying to figure out how Eduardo Rodriguez was going to do for Boston. Now, obviously, Gallo's a great, a great prospect. It's, it's, it's tough to discern how well he's going to do in the short term in his major league uh, uh, debut. But obviously, his first two games, he has a couple of home runs. Um, great athlete. Uh, the, the minor league's best power, a tick above Chris Bryant's if you, um, if, if you uh, listen to the scouts. Good patience. His problem is going to be contact and hitting for average. He'd been playing some outfield uh, before Beltre's injury, which suggests the Rangers were anticipating an early promotion. And it's interesting. Now Josh Hamilton's injury kind of opens up that door. Hamilton's going to be out for uh, for at least a month. So if, if Beltre comes up, uh, you could see Gallo with some extended playing time opportunity if he can hold his own now with Texas. Okay, so he's got Hamilton's injury, gives him a path to playing time. Beltre's current injury also gives him a path. Do the Rangers have any other spots where you think Gallo could play? Well, obviously Gallo's handedness helps since most starting pitchers are right-handed. But when push comes to shove over the long haul, Mitch Moreland isn't going to stand in Gallo's way. On the other hand, Moreland's had a fine year to date. He's hit over 280. His bottom line production and power metrics are all up. He's been a key contributor to the Rangers' offensive sur surge, and he has more experience than Gallo. So Texas isn't going to discard him likely. Uh, a lot of times like this, seem, things seem to be decided via health, like the Hamilton injury. And remember, Texas's competitiveness is going to be a huge factor. Um, the offense looks legitimate, but if the rotation falls apart, uh, if Nick Martinez and Wandy Rodriguez suddenly go south, which could happen, the Rangers could find themselves thinking about 2016 again. And if so, I guess that means that there's uh, renewed interest in possibly Adrian Beltre uh, leaving Texas for a contender. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's, I think, the way they'll be looking if all of a sudden they, uh, they have a losing record come mid-July. Seattle also had an interesting week, Jock, trading a bunch of minor leaguers and young non-starters and getting back slugger Mark Trumbo as well as Vidal Nuno, a starting pitcher with some decent peripherals and a very stylish first name. Uh, Harold Nichols and I discussed the effect of this deal for Wellington Castillo going to Arizona. How does the acquisition of Trumbo and Nuno affect Seattle's immediate outlook? Well, first off, Seattle had been looking desperately for a way to shake things up offensively. Uh, they're the polar opposite of Texas in that they're uh, next to last at the near uh, at the bottom of uh, AL run scored. 
And while Safeco isn't the offensive park that Chase Field was in Arizona, Trumbo's return to the American League and move out of Arizona should be welcome to his owners and that he's going to get to play DH and, and he's going to be get to bat from the DH spot and play first base a lot more. He's, he's less likely to get hurt running around the outfield every day. Um, he still has great power metrics. Um, he's going to take some playing time away from uh, Logan Morrison, probably. It'll allow the Rangers to move Seth Smith into the left field. This could hurt Dustin Ackley, and it could also hurt uh, uh, Justin Ruggiano and Ricky Weeks and anyone else who platoons from the right-handed side over in Seattle. Yeah, if I was uh, a Ruggiano or Weeks owner especially, I'd be uh, feeling a, a little tight in the collar, I think. I hadn't thought of Ackley, but yeah, once the, they start shifting guys around, there, there could be a lot of playing time effect. Now, Jock, I don't know if you agree with me, but I don't think the reason that Seattle is at the bottom of runs scored is because they lack power. They seem to have lots of guys who can hit the ball far. What they lack is on-base percentage, and uh, I think uh, Trumbo's a lifetime 300-ish on-base guy. This is not going to help the Mariners' offense as much as some people think, or am I crazy? Well, it's not an optimal trade, but if you look at what Seattle gives up, they're again, they're, they're trying desperately to find some way to score runs and um, they weren't doing it so if you can get a Mark Trumbo for you know pretty much nothing that's going to hurt you in the short term or maybe even the intermediate term why not do it yeah but the question is does the trade actually help them their problem is on base percentage they have the lowest on base in the American League at 297 and they trade to acquire a guy whose on base percentage for his career is 297 you can't score runs if you don't have guys on base Nope, you're right. Um, it, it's really going to depend on how Trumbo do, does in the American League and in Safeco. Um, um, if he can get hot, I've, obviously I've seen him in, in Southern California. He can carry a team for two, three weeks, but but you hit the nail on the head. If he's going to hit 240 and uh, and and uh, have have contact that doesn't result in hits other than home runs, um, yeah, it it might be a wash. Meanwhile, what about Vidal Nuno? Uh, James Paxton, we know, is on the DL. Uh, Iwakuma's on the DL. So does Nuno just step right in and get a rotation spot? Yeah, Nuno's an interesting guy. Um, I think it's a wait and see with him. He has kind of a mixed history. His uh, the, the good with Nuno is that um, his, his strikeouts per nine are going up. Uh, he's always been a decent control pitcher. Um, so he gets the strikeouts, but he's a huge fly fly ball pitcher, and he gives up a lot of home runs. Um, this may this may work in Safeco. Obviously, it's a it's a good it's a good pitching park. Um, but right now, Mike Montgomery is getting the first crack at say re- replacing James Paxton, and he was actually first goodness first start. He pitched uh, he tossed uh, a pure quality start uh, Dom what what we call a a PQS five outing. And the Mariners are also hopeful that they get Hisashi Iwakuma back for them in late June. So a lot of things are going to have to happen before Nuno gets an extended rotation shot, uh, and he's going to have to run with it. Uh, I, I think he's being viewed more by Seattle as rotation and bullpen depth. Also in Seattle, Jock, Chris Taylor got demoted to AAA. Not a huge surprise, I don't think. Brad Miller was reinstated as the regular shortstop for the Mariners. Jock, it doesn't seem that long ago that Miller lost this job to Taylor and uh, moved into that utility spot. Rod Truesdell noted that Taylor's got demoted in playing time today, and you looked at it in playing time tomorrow. What's going on with this situation at shortstop in Seattle? Well, if you recall, Miller was replaced because Taylor was a better defender, and uh, Taylor was also hitting uh, about 350 in his uh, after coming off the DL in AAA. 
Um, but with the Mariners, he only hit 159. And Taylor has had a minor league history of being an 80% contact hitter, double-digit patience, pretty good, pretty good running game. But he's never been able to do this in uh, at the major league level. Uh, his contact rate has dipped to around 70%. His uh, patience down to a 7% walk rate. So he's hitting 159. And when you're having trouble scoring, uh, defense uh, defense isn't the biggest issue apparently. So uh, Taylor is out and Miller's in. Miller, uh, in spite of the fact that he he doesn't defend well as Taylor, um, he's been hitting for power. He runs a little bit. Uh, his uh, his expected batting average is of, of 273 is actually higher than his 228 batting average. So there's a little bit of fantasy up upside there. Um, I'd be looking at Miller if I were a fantasy owner. Well, in a deep league anyway, if manager Lloyd McClendon decides once again he can't take Miller's poor defense at that key defensive position, has he got any other options at all? Yeah, longer term they do. Um, they've got a guy named Kettle Marte, a, a, a youngster actually. He's, he's only 21 years old at AAA. Um, he's hit 343 and he's struck out just 20 times through 198 at bats. Wow. And even better, he owns a 17 stolen base, three caught stealing mark wow. at a level that's usually reserved for older players. Now, unfortunately, Marte isn't nearly as advanced uh, on defense. And even more unfortunately, he just broke his thumb this past weekend. So he's not in the immediate conversation. But if you're a keeper league owner and you're looking out at the Seattle shortstop uh, situation for 2016, he's going to be in the conversation. Got to like that combination of contact and speed, don't you? Yeah, exactly. And uh, and 21 years old, um, he's, his time is on his side, so he could even get better. Minnesota made something of a surprise announcement by demoting Oswaldo Arcia while he was at a rehab stint in AAA, so I guess he gets to stay there. Mike Shears wrote about this in Playing Time today at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, Oswaldo Arcia, Jock, is coming off a hip injury, and that's going to affect his power, as we've seen with Alex Rodriguez, of course. But he does have big-time home run power, which is something the Twins really need. What's going on with this Oswaldo Arcia situation? You know, the Twins have uh, have have struggled with Arcia through a few injuries over his the past couple of years he's been at the major league levels, and he's come back slowly a couple times. So I think some of this has to do with his past. Uh, Arcia, it's it's a shame really because Arcia was was really heating up before he got injured. He was nine for his previous twenty, and he was starting to hit home runs. But since coming back to uh, AAA after the injury, he's two for 18 and he has 17 strikeouts in his rehab. So his progress was slow. And I think the Twins have seen this before. And the other thing is that Eddie Rosario had actually uh, been producing lately uh, in the outfield. He was 10 for his last 24, as Mike Shears noted. I think this was a message to Arcia just to, you know, focus a little bit, uh, make an effort to uh, get your get your stride back and uh, hopefully uh, Rosario will uh, will relax and keep doing what he's doing. Interesting though, aside from 38-year-old Torrey Hunter in right field, the entire Minnesota outfield DH situation appears to be wide open for the next uh, month or two. So I think if Arcia produces and starts hitting, he's going to be back fairly quickly. What about Kenny Vargas last year, the new David Ortiz, they were calling him, a DH. He had a pretty good year last year. It all fell apart this year. His production caught up with his limited skills, and he got sent down in early May. Any chance he winkles his way back into the situation? 
Well, that was interesting, too, because Vargas was actually hitting a little better when he got sent down in early May. But what he wasn't doing was hitting for power. He's doing that in AAA. He has three home runs and 43 at-bats. He's hitting 349. Of course, AAA is a lot different from the majors. But, uh, yeah, he, he, there's another guy who's going to be under consideration for some DH at-bats. Uh, the problem Minnesota has... Um, is that they have names like Eduardo Nunez and Eduardo Escobar in the DH spot when Torrey Hunter's in right field, and they're near the bottom in AL production. So I think the Twins are going to be looking for at least one of R.C. or Vargas to promote sometime in the next week or two. Um, so it, it's an interesting situation to keep an eye on. Matt Wieters finally made his debut this last Friday after a long absence because of Tommy John surgery. He tried to come back at the start of the year. That famously didn't work. Matt Dodge has been covering this at BaseballHQ.com in playing time today. What is the status with Matt Wieters and the whole catcher situation in Baltimore? Well, obviously, Wieters been gone for a long time. He's going to be worked in slowly. He'll play some DH. Caleb Joseph, Joseph will gradually lose at bats at the catcher spot, move to part-time status, although he could still be marginally valuable in deep league, uh, 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 deep fantasy leagues, uh, particularly playing in Camden Yard in the AL, uh, in the AL East. But um, it's, it's a wait and see with Wieters. We all know he has the power. Uh, he's been gone a long time. Matt Dodge also noted the return to the Yankees rotation of Masahiro Tanaka. He's been on the shelf with elbow problems. They also, I think they call it a forearm strain. But either way, he's back. And the question for fantasy owners, Jock, is how much help do you think he can be? Well, if you look at his year-to-date stats, he's, he's pitched terrifically when he's been active. He's got a 276 ERA, 33 strikeouts, and 29, uh, 29 innings pitched. Um, he's got a, a, a 10.1 strikeout per nine uh, ratio, uh, 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 walking less than three batters per nine. Um, but that's the big issue, right? I mean, is he going to stay? Is he going to stay healthy? Obviously, trying to rehab a partially torn elbow ligament hasn't always worked. In fact, it may it may be working less often than it than it actually works. Um, history says he's going to pitch well when healthy, but he's probably going to get hurt again sometime. Yeah, I think this is a situation where you really have to know how to balance risk and reward. If you're sitting at or near the top of your league right now, even if you get a pretty nice offer to acquire um, Masahiro Tanaka, I don't know if I'd do it. On the other hand, if you're sixth and your pitching rotation's uh, not doing that well, maybe you roll the dice. Tanaka, obviously, uh, when uh, like I said, when he's active, he's going to help your numbers. Um, and, and it's just a matter of when he's going to go back on the DL. At least that's kind of the way I look at it. That's the way I think everybody should be looking at it. Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thanks, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. He covers the American League West for playing time tomorrow, and now he's in the rotation for the Speculator column, so Jock Thompson's real busy, and on top of all of that, He covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our regular Friday talk with Todd. It is Todd Zola coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. There's a drive to right field and deep. Chris going back. Away back. It's gone. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. 
Baseball HQ is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed, like these features. Our Facts and Flukes coverage analyzes slow starts by Julio Terran and Nick Marcakis. Playing Time Today coverage includes analysis of the Arizona-Seattle trade, and in his bullpen buyer's guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at closers at risk in June. BaseballHQ.com updates content every day across a wide range of great information like our Buyer's Guide Skills Assessment Columns, Performance Validation in Facts and Flukes, Roster Analysis in Playing Time Today and Tomorrow, as well as Daily Matchups, Team Coverage, Minor League Scouting and more. And we also have great tools like our projections and other roster management systems you can use to help you dominate your league or daily fantasy. And it's all at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd. And it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really great to be here, Patrick. Todd, last week we talked about a very pressing issue in fantasy baseball. What weather conditions are most conducive to home runs? You decided to do some research. You said, uh, give us a report. What'd you find out? The only podcast with homework. Um, I think it, what we were talking about was was humidity and 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 I in the head I had it was either obvious or the answer was uh, anti you know again non intuitive and that's what it turned out to be it was non intuitive at least to some people. In that, in heavy air, in when in humidity, a ball will actually travel further than in dry air. And as a as a as a former former, I guess you're always a chemist. As a as a chemist in my previous life, I should have remembered why. And that's basically that a water molecule displaces a heavier nitrogen and a heavier oxygen molecule in the air. And even though we think of it heavy air, mainly because we think it's harder to breathe, and it is harder to breathe because there's less oxygen. We call it heavy air, but it's actually less dense. It's actually lighter in, as far as density goes. In a ball, will indeed travel further in humidity than, than it will in dry air. We should point out, though, that the ability of the ball to fly through the air and the likelihood that it will travel far is not just a matter of the humidity of the air. There are a lot of factors going into it. Uh, temperature comes into it, and uh, warmer is better than cold because of the density of the air as it warms up, the molecules spread out, and so forth. There's also the wind. There's also the altitude, which is make what makes Coors Field such a great hitter's park, iris, almost irrespective of its weather. Right, and and helps a little bit of chase field too, because that's that's at altitude. Now that's that's it, you know we think of the, you know the dry air. It's a dry heat. Well, it's also an air conditioned heat in uh, in in Arizona there, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the there's a little bit more moisture in the air in in Chase Field because it's closed, and with the air conditioning and the the warmer weather, the warmer temperature. I'll bet the air is a little bit heavier there than it would be outside, which is another reason why Chase Field might be so great. Uh, for home runs. Have you ever looked into whether Chase Field plays better for home runs with the roof open or closed? Have not looked into that. I, I don't know that it's, I don't know the, the percentage of times that it's actually opened. I don't, I'm not, I don't know for sure. Um, I do know I've been in there and, I, and then it's, it, it's opened and it's still being air conditioned just the way they have the air conditioning come down from the stands or whatever. I have, 
I know the air conditioning's on even when the roof is open, which, you know, I can hear your mother saying, you know, close the car window, I got the air conditioning on. Um, so apparently they don't care about that very much at Chase Field. I don't know. And the same, I think you can say the same in, in Houston, uh, very humid down, down there with uh, Minute Maid and the, the roof opener closed. I don't know. I'm not sure how many park factors are so fickle as it is. I don't know if the sample of open and closed would actually be real at that point. And, uh, of course, Rogers Center, formerly that's called Skydome in Toronto, they've had, it's a fairly humid place in the summertime. It's right sitting on Lake Ontario. And they've had a lot of experience with the roof open and closed. And um, I'll give myself this homework assignment. I'm going to try to find out if anybody's uh, tracked the number of home runs hit with the roof open or closed. And I wonder how it affects the humidity anyway, because you, as you said, they, they air condition the ballpark in Arizona. Usually when you air condition a place, it takes humidity out of the air but of course even in your own home heating system if you find the air is a little dry you just slap a humidifier onto the furnace and you can inject humidity into the air and it can make it quite a bit more comfortable i wouldn't be at all surprised if uh, the arizona ballpark and others are injecting humidity when the roof is closed wouldn't be surprised and and, and who knows um maybe this is the next gate you know the humidity gate i don't know but uh doesn't sound like they're doing anything illegal. Uh, and, and, you know, I've always wondered why Toronto is such a great hitter's park because the, the, the distances don't look extremely small, it, but yet the ball, you know, the ball travels very well there. So that would be interesting to find out. I've been in it a few times and I've never measured it or even looked into it in any detail. But from having been in the stadium quite a few times, I think the foul grounds are pretty small, unlike, say, Oakland, where it's. Its propensity as a hitter's park is reduced because so many foul flies go for outs, where in Toronto or, or smaller parks they would be in the stands, that kind of thing. But definitely the ball flies there. It's not unusual to see balls go into the second deck well out into the outfield. Uh, of course, there's been balls hit into the fifth deck in Toronto, which are prodigious clouts to say the least. Do you think there's any potential here for um, daily fantasy especially to understand those kind of details about the park or is it a kind of a marginal effect? Well, as you were saying, you're going to do your study on roof open and close. That was a thought that came to my head because uh, you, know, you follow some Twitter feeds and they will mention if a certain park is open or closed. So I was going to say I'll bet the data is out there and Unfortunately, DFS doesn't care about sample size a lot of times, and you have to be careful. Uh, but I, I suspect that the data is out there, and people are using it to their advantage slash disadvantage, whether parks are open or closed. And that is an interesting aspect of DFS to sort of keep in mind going forward as far as, you know, what to use certain pitchers. We're already doing it with certain umpires. Now, you know, if we gain an advantage or lose an advantage because of a dome being open or closed. Yeah, that's a it's a very interesting point. But I think it's going to be at the margins rather than a core issue. Obviously, the matchup between pitchers and hitters, handedness, that kind of thing is going to be considerably more uh, impactful on whether we need to project a certain player to do well or a certain pitcher to do well. His opposition is going to be the main thing still, isn't it? Yeah, I think, you know, I'm finding every, all these studies I'm doing, that's the quality of opponent that is the most overriding factor. You know, there, there's variance on each and every day. Uh, but I think if that's your primary 
sort of litmus test, you know, good hitter versus bad pitcher, you're going to come out ahead more often than not. I think it's more of the players that, that play volume that are looking for every edge they can get because they want to put in more and more lineups and get, you know, more, more edges than just their, in theory, their optimal lineup. So I, I suspect it's the, uh, the case. Although I can see someone putting in just one lineup, maybe want to take advantage of, of, a, of a roof being open too. So I can see where it goes both ways, but I would tend, if I'm putting in one lineup, I don't know that I want to, you know, put all my chicken, all my chickens, all my eggs in the basket of, of minute made is open. I'm going to stack the Astros tonight or something like that. Speaking of fantasy a daily play at Fantasy Alarm this week, you took a week off from your usual analytical approach and just had a, I'm not going to call it a rant, but certainly a vigorous issue with the way daily fantasy is played. What's your beef? Yeah, exactly. I'm glad you didn't call it a rant because I didn't, I don't consider it a rant. I it just consider it a point of view. In that, um, in a nutshell, it's the paper play aspect of DFS that I don't, it doesn't it doesn't it frustrates me. I guess I, I guess is the is the softest word. I you know it, it is what it is, and I accept it and 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 fine. But for me, the challenge of of anything isn't you know, making my bank account bigger. I mean, that's nice. You know, that's what my job is for. The, uh, the challenge for me anyway is more of, more of a, I don't know, a mental, a mental procedure and just learning the, learning how to do the, the new format and becoming good at it. And because I do this for a living, you know, t- telling people, you know, how to become good at it as well. For me, that's the challenge and that's the motivation. Not the money aspect of it. So I just kind of talked a little bit about how kind of I wish if there was a, a way for DFS to not be so focused on money and be more focused on some of the real nuances of the play that are, to me, the next level of fantasy baseball. It was an interesting point to discuss, and I thought you had a really excellent idea for addressing it, at least in so far as creating a competition, and that was to have a league that runs for the full length of the season, but is based on points that the league members amass every day playing daily fantasy baseball. That's a, it's a really good idea, Todd. Right. Now, I, what, the way I, the way I framed it, maybe for a little bit of effect, I don't know, was, you know, what if the very first incarnation of DFS was just that? Was this is how it was introduced. It wasn't introduced as paper play, but it was the next iteration of fantasy baseball. And it's just like you described. You pick your team. Just as, you know, like we do right now and you end, add up the points. And I think a lot of people that want to disparage it as, as gambling and anybody can win on any given day because it's luck, that narrative would now be, sure, anything can happen on one day, but the person who's better at, at identifying day to day advantages in their lineup at the end of 180 days is going to be the winner, which is, you know, kind of what it, what it is actually now. And, quite frankly, could be my argument against people that call it gambling. And, you know, in, in a way, it kind of was a backhanded argument against people that call it gambling, but, you know, sort of framed in a different manner. But sure, I mean, in, in all these people that, you know, that you read on the fantasy forums everywhere, uh, they might be more into the game and they may accept it. And you might be able to use some of these more newfangled analytical procedures you know, in, in your daily analysis that you still use 
in your seasonal, but you're basically using them to, to make your projections and maybe to figure out if a player you want to drop, dump or trade or something like that. You get to use some of these newfangled analytical means on a daily basis, which is kind of cool. So that was the way. Yeah. And, and who's to say that it won't occur too? Uh, you have to monetize it, obviously, but who's to say that, that eventually down the line that this isn't the next iteration of our seasonal fantasy baseball? I think it might be. Uh, you know, who knows? Um, I don't think, you know, seasonal's ever going away in the way we play it now, but things change and it's out there. The ability to, to track it's out there. And, uh, who knows? Maybe I planted a seed and if it could grow, you know, I don't, I don't think we'll call it after, name it after me or anything. I don't want it to be, but it'd be kind of cool if, if someone picked it up and, and had a couple of practice leagues or showcase leagues in this, in this manner. What would be really cool is if you got a nickel every time somebody signed up. Well, the stories about, you know, Wagner right now lamenting that, you know, he's actually lost money from, uh, from the, from naming rotisserie. He didn't so much lose it, but that's what it sounds like. Uh, it's okay. As long as I can pay my bills and make my rent, that's all I need. You know, someone wants to pay me to write about it. I don't need to, uh, you can keep your nickels. One of the things that this idea addresses is what a lot of people find is the main failing of season-long fantasy baseball, and that is what happens if you lose a star player early on in the season? There's absolutely no way to recover, especially in leagues where the free agent pool, which is now most leagues, is too thin to replace a top-flight player. Exactly, and I think you could even even flip it, and you know somebody goes out there, and they just they drafted someone who wasn't expected to do anything at all and was it lucky that you picked that guy up or you know what did you see something in his numbers to pick that guy up well now in the you know in the daily everybody can use him he might not be in your seasonal team but everybody can use that player now that you know that seems to be doing just a, you know a little bit better than what was expected you know i wasn't going to take Bryce Harper in my and I didn't trust him. I made a mistake. Oh well, well you know you can take your Bryce Harper and your DFS now. Um, I think that's the other. You know the other. It's not just the injuries. I think there's as much luck about getting a a guy in your reserve round that turns out to be a a top hundred player as there is about drafting a guy in the first round that gets hurt. You know the luck can go in both directions. Our mutual friend Gene McCaffrey says that playing these salary cap formats, which allow everybody to own any player they like, are the truest sense of your ability to process and calculate value versus cost. Right. He he you know, he plays the C D N games. This is my first year of playing head to head sports. It's a it's a it's a high it's it's I don't know how it's it's a medium stakes league and I'm having a blast. It's 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 done on a head to head basis, but you pick your team via the salary cap as well. So it's just I I don't haven't had as much experience with Gene in the CDM etc. But I can see what he's saying as far as that goes about the uh, the purity nature of it. And I could even you know take taking this daily game a, a step further, introduce some interesting strategies about it. In that, what if you were locked into X amount of times using a particular player. So, you know, right now, you know, every time that Matt Harvey's on the mound, if everybody chooses Matt Harvey in their DFS, you know, in their DFS slash seasonal lineup, it's as if nobody chose him because, you know, everybody's using him. So it doesn't matter how he did. So what if there was a, a limit to the amount of times that you could use uh, Troy Tulowitzki? Are you going to use him? Are you going to use up his his uh, bats at the beginning of the season when you know he's healthy? Or are you going to take a chance that he's healthy at the end 
and use other guys now, and now you have a healthy Troy Terlowitzki in September. So I think there can be some interesting strategic twists to the DFS if we put limits on the amount of usage per player. I'll push back on that a little bit. I, I wonder if playing in a small league like this against the same small group of guys, you might want to approach it more like a tournament DFS game than like the big 50-50s in that if you think that everybody in the in the league is going to take Matt Harvey tonight, then maybe you're going to zig while they're all zagging and try to capture some advantage by being real smart about what other pitcher you might be able to take. Especially later in the year. I mean, we're finding that right now in Tout Daily. Um, my, my Masters Ball managing partner, Lar Michaels, was in the contention for the money, money spot or the ticket into the championship and the fourth week. So did he want to try to win the week or did he want to just try to maintain his spot within the top three to get the invitation to the championship? So he, he kind of felt that sort of conundrum. You know, he chose to try to play it safe and get in there, and he and he did. You know, good for Lar. But I can see that a lot in September is the, uh, in, in, maybe this is a difference between a rotisserie league. When you're out of it, you're out of it. But if you're, you know, if you're a few points down in September, now you start taking those chances to try to catch up. So that's another interesting twist to the DFS over rotisserie, in that you know you're not set at the team, and if you need to start taking chances to win. You know, who cares if, if, if the, the starter's terrible and he, you know, had a terrible game instead of having the good game that you thought. You do what you needed to do to win. Now, that kind of goes against, in my analytical processes, that you kind of, you know, you, you want to make the decisions based upon what the numbers say, not because it's the only way I can win, but it's still a competition. And, and I guess at the end of the day, it's still fun. And if you are good enough to make the right decisions throughout the season then you're going to be in the driver's seat and you're not going to be the one having to do this and you know you'll probably end up winning anyway but you know i think it would add an interesting twist it's like we we're saying you know do i take a chance do i play it safe but i still think having a certain number of set times using a player could it could be the best of both worlds you still have to make your decision and not overuse a player you know can, can you use the same hitter every single day you know, I guess it depends upon what his price is and who's setting the prices, et cetera. But I think it'd be, you know, it'd be nice to have a little bit of, of changing it up as far as the, your players on your rosters on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, how about this? Uh, you could have a draft or an auction at the start of the year, but say if you had a 12-team league, a player could be owned by six guys. In your daily decision-making, you'd have to pick from a roster of, I don't know, 40 names or, you know, a certain number of guys at each position and uh, not be allowed to pick anybody in the whole world, but you'd have to construct a, a, a roster at the draft that enabled you to participate uh, aggressively during the year on the daily basis. Right. And that what, here, what happens here is you don't lose the feel of your draft day either, because that, that would be the one thing, the one negative to having a DFS only league is you, you lose out in that draft day. So now this is a way to, to sort of get that, you know, the initial feeling. I don't know how long it would take if you're drafting, you know, six players, you know, if everybody's drafting 200 players from which to use. On the other hand, the, the thought process between picks might not, might not be quite as long. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, it, it's, uh, we got to get there first, but there's definitely twists and turns that can make it work. 
Maybe the place to look is Tout X, the new experimental league that was launched this year at Tout Wars, where every year they're going to try new ideas, outside-the-box thinking, new approaches to fantasy baseball. Maybe you should put a word in somebody's ear there. This sounds like it has uh, some good potential. Yeah, well, from what my understanding is each of the four members of the LLC, they're going to alternate each year, you know, dealer's choice, uh, proposing what the, the new role is and sort of being the head of that particular system over that particular format. So I guess I just got to, uh, you know, get my, get my wallet open and just start, you know, buying some drinks for, for, for Jeff Erickson, for Peter Kreutzer, for Lar and, uh, see if they can buy into my idea. You never know. It, it could, it could happen. It's going to be really interesting, and it is a good idea, and it's fun to think about because there are aspects of daily games that are really, really fun, and there are aspects that are not so fun, and there are aspects of seasonal play that are really, really fun and aspects that are not, and it seems like it's worth looking into whether you can somehow meld the fun parts of both systems to make a really, really fun league and a, and a new way of looking at the analytics, as you said. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola, talking with Todd on a Friday. And uh, Todd, uh, you have a podcast yourself now. Uh, you can tell us about that. And in it, recently, you talked about the XFL. That's an experts league that's run at First Pitch Arizona every fall. You talked about a f- fairly controversial, fairly unusual blockbuster deal that took place in that league between Ron Chandler and Steve Moyer. And I think it was either right at the start of the season or maybe even slightly before What they did was Ron Chandler did a dump trade, and he did it right at the start of the year. And as a result of that, uh, Steve Moyer is now way ahead in that league. And uh, in your podcast, you discussed the after effects of that deal insofar as everybody else is dealing. Can you explain? Yeah, sure. I think you've talked to Ron about this trade, and I know he's written about it, in that it was uh, the XFL is a keeper league, and... They just did a three for three where Steve got three solid players for this year and, and Ron got three very good pieces for the future. And Ron knew coming into the season that it was a rebuilding year. He put it out there. He tried to get someone to bite early and, and Steve did. And this is the first year in about five or six that I find myself needing to dump because it's just not going to, I call it my annual run for third place. I'm not even going to be able to make my annual run for third place this year. So I'm out there looking to trade away some of my good help for this year that I'm not going to keep to build up my keeper list to, you know, to try to keep up with Ron and Ron next year. And whether Ron planned it or not, I don't know. It's, there's been another, an effect of people aren't willing to make another blockbuster deal. They're, they're making smaller deals and maybe that's just the nature of the, the people I don't know. But I've got some pretty, pretty sharp help for, for if someone were to take three of my guys, at least in my mind, they could catch, could catch or make a run for Steve. But obviously it's going to take, if I'm going to do it, it's going to take getting a pretty darn good keeper, set of keepers back in return. And no one is willing to make that level of move i can trade one of my guys and you know i can't you know i can get i can probably trade all three but i'm not going to get back the package that i thought i could get you know if i could make you know, help help somebody actually catch steve it's just an interesting dynamic of you have to know your league you have to know you know be a little bit prescient as far as what's going to happen down the road and and sort of you know do i stay or do i go sort of thing and and 
it's just, you know, maybe it's bad timing. I don't know. I still think I'm going to get a couple of good keepers out of it. But I think it's, uh, you know, whether Ron did it on purpose or not, one of the after effects of that deal is that he's probably going to be get the best keepers of anybody else trying to acquire keepers going forward just because people aren't going to be willing to give away the top-notch guy at this point. I've said for years in talking about uh, at the BaseballHQ.com forums, uh, in uh, just talking with people at the various Baseball HQ events, talking with my own league mates about the unintended consequences when you make rule changes or, or set up your rules. And one of them has to do with if you're going to allow dump trading, especially dump trading with no controls like uh, in-year salary caps and so forth, the natural impetus, it seems to me, is to, that those trades are going to be made earlier and earlier and earlier every year. And I think I'm seeing that in a lot of leagues that I know about. And the reason is, if you're going to dump, if you're going to make a dump trade and you want to be the guy acquiring the studs, you want them as early as you can get them. If I come to you and I come to Ron and I say to either of you, give me three prospects, I'll give you uh, Miguel Cabrera now, and you say, uh, no, I'd rather wait till July, I'm going to want to do it now and the, and somebody's going to want to do it now because they want Paul Goldschmidt or, or, or Miggy Cabrera for the whole year, not half the year like it used to be. Right, and I, I see the same dynamic, but I, it's really, I mean, this is more anecdotal than anything else, but it used to be that that never happened. I don't. It almost was taboo. It was an unwritten rule of a keeper league that you don't dump until July. And for whatever reason, it's just become more and more accepted to dump earlier. And at, for the reasons that you explain, I mean, it's always, the reasons you explain have always been true, but for some reason... It was just this unwritten rule to don't do it. It just and and but I don't know why. Maybe it's just there's so much other things going on now that you know the first person that decided to you know open the floodgates and you know it's oh geez I guess we can do this after all and then it became a follow the leader sort of thing. But um I, you know I agree and and this trade actually occurred before the first pitch was thrown between Ron and Steve, which made it you know nothing against the rules at all as long as the you know the the only possible rule that had to be worried about, and this is on Steve's end, was we have a salary cap. And he actually acquired players. He couldn't use them all. He'd have to sit a very, very good player every week uh, to get to keep his active roster under the cap, and it was something he was willing to do, knowing that injuries would eventually kick in and he'd be able to, you know, not have to make that decision. But that was, you know, one of the, when, as soon as the trade was made, that was the first reaction was, how's he going to fit all those people under the cap? Well, he's going to sit the worst highest paid player that he has which you know he's going to start on all our other teams but you know he was willing to do that um so i think that the uh as long as the rules to me you know the commission doesn't do the governing the rules do the governing and if a trade is legal under your constitution you know there's nothing wrong with it it may be perfectly legal but it often really upsets the the actual dynamics of the league and the personal dynamics of the league. Right. Is it good for the future of the league as well? And if, you know, if I'm, you know, you know, truth be told, if I'm starting a league from square one, I want there to be a, a certain level of the, of, you know, future trading, uh, of present, present for future trading. However, you know, it's been my experience that the, the best way to at least keep it under control is using the salary cap. I would have a, 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 movable cap where at the beginning of the year, if the auction is 
260 if your budget's 260 maybe through the first month or two it's you can have a you know 280 or 285 and then maybe come june or july it goes up to 300 or 320 something like that i would have a you know to prevent this sort of blockbuster deal at the beginning to to at least at least give you know because the key is you know what what do you want to decide a keeper league do you want it to be the quality of the keeper list? Do you want it to be how well you drafted? Or do you want it to be who's the best horse trader at the deadline just to get the best pieces? And I think the answer is you want it to be a combination of all three. It's just you need to set the rules to have the, you know, the, which, which to set the pie, the proportional pieces of the pie in the way that you'd like. And, you know, the other thing being sort of the overriding factor, you know, if everybody in the league likes a rule, then it's a good rule. You know, I might not like the rule, therefore I shouldn't be in that league. But if 12 or 10 or 15 people like the rules and play by it, then who cares what, you know, the rest of the world can think it's the silliest rule there is. But if those 12 people like it, then it's a great rule. Uh, so that's the other thing, too, is you need to get everybody on the same page as far as what you want that dynamic as far as draft versus trading versus uh, how good your keepers are. Tell us where that podcast is, by the way. It's actually called a Toddcast. Um, it's just a, a five to ten minute little MP3 that I post on the site. Uh, I, I try to do it as often as I can. Um, I started out weekly, and now it's maybe two or three times a week. And and Lar Michaels chips in as well. It's just something on my mind. I don't script anything. I just kind of put the headphones on and just kind of babble for five or ten minutes into the uh, into the microphone, then post it on the site. Um, it's just another way to get out there. Sometimes. You can just like talking instead of writing. You just you can be a little more informal this way, and and uh, that sort of thing. It's just another way to get out there, and uh, plus it's it's easier for some people to just to, to listen for five minutes as opposed to reading. So started it up. It's uh, the technology is pretty straightforward, and uh, it's uh, posted on the front of the site. Uh, the the link that if they can catch up on on all the old ones, and uh, you know, like I said it's. Uh, my name's Todd. It rhymes with pod, so why not just call it the Toddcast? And when you say the site, you mean mastersball.com? I mean mastersball. I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean mastersball. You have to say that because you're on uh, you're on more sites than Kim Kardashian. Um, you know, that's the first time. I, well, no, actually, our, our, the size of our rear ends have been compared. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> so anyway. All right. Thanks a million, Todd, for helping us out again this week. I'll do the homework looking into whether we can find out domed stadiums, roof open, roof closed, whether there's any difference in home runs or any other significant metric. And in the meantime, I really appreciate you coming on, and we'll talk to you again next week. Looking forward to it. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, for Ron Chandler's ChandlerPark.com. He's at ESPN, MastersBall, FantasyAlarm.com, and wherever Todd Zola is writing, you should be reading, and go check out his Toddcast. If he's talking, you should be listening. When we come back, we'll have our commentaries. It's pitcher matchups and master notes coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Jackson with four runs batted in. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. So now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, I'll be taking a shot with Master Notes, and right now it's our Pitcher Matchups Report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. 
We recommend pitchers whose matchup ratings are plus two and higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers with matchup ratings below zero. Between zero and two, that's a risk-benefit analysis you'll have to assess given your own league and expectations. Here with some of this weekend's matchups, looking at a battle of southpaws with Dodgers ace Clayton Kershaw hosting St. Louis starter Jaime Garcia and another showdown between top righties Michael Pineda of the Yankees at home to face the Angels' Garrett Richards is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Welcome to the first weekend in June. To help prevent June swoons, let's use the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool to identify some weekend warriors and some weekend worries. There are 17 matchup ratings of 2-0 or greater this weekend, with 7 on Saturday and 10 more on Sunday. There are 10 negative matchup ratings this weekend, split evenly between Saturday and Sunday. Let's start with a National League matchup on Saturday, in which both pitchers are lefties with matchup ratings of at least 2. Clayton Kershaw is at home with a matchup rating of 2-0 after accomplishing the almost impossible task of throwing a PQS-5 at Coors Field in his most recent outing. It was his 8th PQS-5 in 11 starts, his 7th in his past 8 starts, and 4th in succession. New research coming out on BaseballHQ.com from our award-winning podcast host Patrick Davitt indicates that Kershaw has a 70% chance of throwing another PQS-DOM against the visiting St. Louis Cardinals. Yet their pitcher has a higher matchup rating at 275. Jaime Garcia comes into Dodger Stadium with only three starts thus far in 2015, a PQS-3 to begin his season after returning from shoulder surgery, and two PQS-4s to follow. Garcia's matchup rating is higher than Kershaw's not because of the two pitchers, but because of their two teams. St. Louis has the best record in Major League Baseball, including 16-12 versus teams at 500 or above, 13-11 on the road, and 6-5 versus left-handed pitchers. L.A. is only 3-9 versus teams at 500 or above and 2-6 versus lefties. Still, the Dodgers' home record is second in the majors at 21-7, so you can send either Kershaw or Garcia to the hill with high expectations on Saturday. Sliding over to the American League on Sunday for a battle of righties, the other L.A. team sends Garrett Richards into Yankee Stadium with a matchup rating of 0-69 to face Michael Pineda and his matchup rating of 2-68. Pineda has a base performance value 9 points higher than Kershaw's at 182. Pineda has posted PQS doms in 7 of his 11 starts, striking out more than a batter an inning and walking less than a batter a game. Compared with 2014 when he returned from his shoulder surgery, Pineda has boosted his ground ball rate from 39% to 53% and reduced his fly ball rate from 42% to 29%. So pick Pineda in this one. Now let's turn to the weekend warnings. We have some of the usual suspects, such as Jeff Locke and Mike Wright, some youngsters in over their heads like Severino Gonzalez, Jose Orena, and Kendall Graven, and some others like Jorge De La Rosa, Matt Garza, and Brett Oberholzer. But there's also one that might tempt you. He has PQS doms in four of his past five starts, and six PQS doms in ten starts overall this season. His strong surface stats are even backed up by some of his underlying metrics. But this guy is going into Cleveland with a matchup rating of minus 179 for a reason. And he's facing Danny Salazar, whose praises we sang last weekend and who has a matchup rating of 258. 
To offset all of his PQS doms, Ubaldo Jimenez has three PQS zeros, all on the road. Baltimore's road record is 28th in Major League Baseball at 8-17. And, and against teams under 500 like the O's, Cleveland is 13-7. and seven. Jimenez has never had a control rate below 3.5 walks per nine innings pitched, and it's now at 2.5. The red flags are waving. His first pitch strike rate is only 61%, and his swinging strike rate is only 9%. Over the past five years, his velocity has decreased by six miles an hour. And our projections show he's headed for sizable corrections. Take heed and resist the temptation of Ubaldo Jimenez, especially on the road. Instead of starting a June swoon this weekend, start Clayton Kershaw, Jaime Garcia, Michael Pineda, and Danny Salazar. But stay away from Ubaldo Jimenez. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I'd like to talk to you about the free pass. On May 31st, the Arizona Diamondbacks' Paul Goldschmidt made history in Milwaukee. He had three hits, including a home run, and four walks in a 16-inning loss to the Brewers. A three-hit game in the grand scheme of things is really not that historic. This season alone, through June 2nd, we've seen 729 instances of a player getting three knocks in one game. Last season, there were more than 2,000. Even if we look specifically for games where a batter got the three hits, with one of them also being a home run, it's not even that rare. In fact, the same day as Goldschmidt did it, so did Todd Frazier, DJ LeMayhew, and Steven Souza. The next day, Freddie Freeman of the Braves did it against Goldschmidt's team. And the day after that, Brandon Moss, Joey Gallo, Chase Utley, and Shin Su Chu all did it. So if the hits and the home run are not so special, not so historic, then what is? Well, let's look at Goldschmidt's walks. That gets a little more interesting. An individual hitter getting four or more walks in a game is really rare. Since 1914, it has happened only about 1,750 times, an average of a little less than 17 times per season. Now, if we combine Goldschmidt's three hits with four walks, we are shooting into perfect game territory for rarity. In fact, a three-hit, four-walk game is even rarer than a perfect game. There have been 21 perfectos in the big leagues since 1914, but only 17 where a hitter got three hits and four walks, plus an 18th where Melky Cabrera had three hits and five walks. It's still not enough to really make history, though. But here's what is. Three of Goldschmidt's four walks were intentional, and since baseball started keeping track of intentional walks, nobody ever had three of them and three hits in a single game. Nobody, that is, until May 31st and Paul Goldschmidt. Nobody knows for sure when managers started issuing the intentional base on balls, but we do know that the practice goes back to the very beginnings of the organized game. A while back, the sabermetrician and researcher Trent McCotter unearthed some newspaper articles about an 1881 game in which the Buffalo Bisons were facing the league-leading Chicago White Stockings who of course went on to become the Chicago Cubs. Don't ask. 
Apparently, the pitcher Jack Lynch had loaded the bases and was so afraid of white-stocking slugger Abner Dalrymple that he, and I quote the article, deliberately sent in seven balls rather than take the chances of a hit by Dalrymple, and in this way forced a run upon Chicago. How do you like that? A bases-loaded intentional walk in 1881. Take that, Buck Showalter. Now, if you want to Google intentional base on balls, you'll find other anecdotes here and there from the olden days. All of them are about intentional walks with the bases loaded. And the fact that only the relatively odd bases loaded pass is deemed worthy of comment leads me to believe that the intentional walk itself was probably pretty commonplace. Major League Baseball didn't start officially tracking intentional walks until 1955. At that time, they were pretty rare, occurring about 0.29 times per game, or roughly once every three and a half games. The game stayed around that level until 1965, when they jumped up to 0.35 per game, and they climbed to a peak in 1967, reaching 0.4 intentional walks per game, or about one every two and a half games. Since 1967, though, it's been a long and mostly steady decline. Last season, in fact, was the lowest rate ever, 0.2 intentional walks per game, and this year it's up only a tick at 0.21. Usually, we have to wait almost five games these days to enjoy the suspense, the excitement, the sheer baseball majesty of the intentional walk. But even though the intentional walk count is down, I'm still the kind of guy who's always looking for an edge. And for a short few moments, I thought maybe intentional walks could provide me a little sliver of advantage in making roster decisions. And no, I don't think the moon landing was faked. After all, Goldschmidt's 12 intentional walks lead all of baseball this season, and he also just happens to be the most valuable fantasy hitter in the whole game. Yes, even ahead of Bryce Harper. Other 2015 intentional walk leaders include premium fantasy sluggers like Mike Trout, Miguel Cabrera, Matt Holliday, and Albert Pujols, who, by the way, will soon pass Henry Aaron for second place on the all-time intentional walk list. Including Pujols, the top intentional walk list includes 14 hitters with more than 200 free passes in their careers. All of them are either in the Hall of Fame will be in as soon as they're eligible, or should be in, except for the pious sanctimony of the voters. Speaking of which, of course the very idea of the intentional walk should immediately make any fantasy owner think of the hitter who sits on top of the career list, Barry Bonds. He was a $40-plus fantasy monster for many years, and was by far the career leader in intentional walks, 688 of them in his career, in fact. And if you want to attribute all of it to the cream and the clear, a good number of those free passes came when Bonds was still sporting a normal-sized noggin in Pittsburgh. In 2004 in San Francisco, Bonds had 45 home runs, a 6.09 on base percentage, and a 14.22 OPS. He also had 120 intentional walks. So you can see how the temptation is there to connect those dots. It seems like there must be some way in which intentional walks somehow provide a hint to the potential for great hitting. But now I think it's more likely that high intentional walk counts are the result of great hitting, not a predictor of it. Managers walk guys intentionally because they fear the power. And that reputation as a power hitter takes a while to get established. 
Goldschmidt is a 1,000 OPS hitter. He gets pitched around because other teams are scared of him, but they know to be scared of him because of what he's done on the field. And there's more. Goldschmidt gets his intentional walks because the Diamondbacks have nobody to bat after him. In fact, I saw a story the other day online that pointed out that every intentional walk issued to Paul Goldschmidt has worked as a tactical measure. The Diamondbacks are 0 for 11 after a Goldschmidt pass with one walk. So why wouldn't you walk him? As a result of all this, it seems to me that too much of this stat depends on the opposing manager and the batter's own roster. And of course, the situation. I noted earlier that Matt Holliday is in the top 10 this year in intentional walks, but he's actually tied with Jordy Mercer of the Pirates. That's the Jordy Mercer with the 550 OPS. Why are they walking Jordy Mercer? He bats 8th in the National League, so he gets pitched around because the pitcher is up next. This is not rocket surgery. As bad a hitter as Mercer is, he's still quite a lot more dangerous than, say, A.J. Burnett. But the most important reason not to think of intentional walks as a real important metric is that at BaseballHQ.com we strive to focus on skills when we assess player potential. And when you think about it, an intentional walk is literally a zero-skill activity. The only thing you have to do is stand in one place with a long wooden stick in your hand and count to four. An orchestra conductor could do it. When he's being intentionally walked, the hitter is just standing there watching two guys play catch. If he had a chair, a beer, and heartburn, they could be me. Now, I still did all the correlations and studies and analysis I could think of, and I'm more convinced than ever there's nothing predictive about intentional walks that we don't already know from actual skills, like hitting the ball, and hitting the ball hard. I still like Paul Goldschmidt a lot as a hitter, but these intentional walks? Hey, they're fun to explore, like so much of baseball. But believe me, folks, they don't mean anything. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, you can also get Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 5th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 32 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of the show, Todd Zola. I always enjoy our weekly talk with Todd, and I hope you like it as much as I do. I also want to thank our contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I'll soon have a Baseball HQ research and analysis article looking at the predictive power of hot streaks among pitchers. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and be the first to know when a new podcast is ready for download. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. 
Thanks again for listening. We won't have a podcast on Tuesday as I take care of some personal business, but we will be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.